Hey guys, if you're like me and Nick, we are always looking out for new ways to study for the CREOGs and our boards and just knowing things for our practice in everyday life. And when we set up a podcast like this and try to get out an episode a week, sometimes we need a little bit of help putting that together. So we have actually partnered up with the OBG Project, who is able to come out with amazing content every single day for busy OBGYN residents like you and me, and also for attendings and fellows. And if you're a fourth-year resident right now, OBG Project is giving away for free for one year access to their premium subscription service called OBG First. So what OBG First is, is that you will get a daily email or text to your phone or email with the latest clinical summary of the day. And you can also have access on the OBG First's website to your very own bookshelf so you can keep articles and summaries that you enjoy and want to refer back to. I'm taking a look at my phone now. And in the last few days, OBG First has sent me some great updates regarding aspirin and preeclampsia, regarding new guidelines for thrombocytopenia in pregnancy, a whole host of things that they put together, send to you every single day, and really easy to read through just in the five minutes it takes between your next case. We like their resources so much that we're actually going to be including links to their relevant resources on our website. And if you check out our website under support and partners, you'll find a link to OBG First where you can sign up, again, for free if you're a fourth-year resident for one whole year. It's super easy to do. Again, check out our website, find the link, fill out the information. They send a coupon code to your email, and voila, you have OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. All right, so today we have with us as a guest, Dr. Chris Now. Chris is a fellow in maternal fetal medicine at Women and Infants Hospital in the Warren Alpert Brown School of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. So Chris, what are you gonna be talking to us about today? I thought it would be a great topic to go over uh, fetal growth restriction. There's a lot of questions we get when we're on service and taking care of these both from residents and from some of our community providers and uh, I think a quick overview going over some of the underlying physiology behind it, our rationale for how we work up and evaluate it uh, is useful for anyone at any point in their training. So to break that down into more of some specific learning objectives, what is fetal growth restriction? What causes fetal growth restriction? What are the implications of it? So why do we care about fetal growth restriction? going back into how do we actually define fetal growth restriction, and then into more of the pragmatic practice implications. So how do we screen for fetal growth restriction? How do we evaluate fetal growth restriction? And how do we manage the remainder of a pregnancy once it's been identified? Perfect. Well, sounds like it'll be a great discussion. So I guess, Chris, just to start off, what exactly is growth restriction? So when we think about fetal growth restriction, the name itself implies an abnormality in fetal growth. Fetal growth is determined by a fetus's growth potential, which is largely determined by genetics, demographics, and other factors, and its interaction with and modulation by the health of the fetus, the placenta, and the mother. We'll go into it more deeply later, but 
diabetes can cause changes that can cause increased fetal growth. Uteroplacental disruption can cause decreased growth. Broadly speaking, fetal growth restriction is how we describe a fetus that has not reached its genetic growth potential due to other intrinsic or environmental factors. When we break up fetal growth restriction, there's two broad categories that we think about it. There is asymmetric fetal growth restriction, and this is the majority of cases. This is 70 to 80% of your cases of fetal growth restriction. And this is what, at least when I was a resident, how I thought about most cases of fetal growth restriction. And so what it is, is it results from a mismatch um, in fetal nutrient oxygen requirements and placental supply. And so this results in not only a baby that's not growing to its potential that it might otherwise grow, but also results in shunting of blood supply to more critical tissues like the brain, the heart, and leads to a decrease in subcutaneous fat accumulation in the abdomen and decreased liver size. And so this is a baby that is not only small, but this is where we think about a baby that has a smaller abdominal circumference that's lagging behind its gestational age uh, more than maybe the head, for example. The other classification that we think of is what we call symmetric fetal growth restriction. And this is 20 to 30% of fetal growth restriction. This is caused by, generally we think, earlier disruption in gestation. So this is something uh, that could be more, more likely to be related to aneuploidy or other genetic diseases, infections, drug or toxin exposure. But this can also be related to placental dysfunction if it occurs earlier in gestation. And so these fetuses are still at risk of poor outcomes. So while we may not dramatically alter our management, if it's symmetric or asymmetric, it helps clue us in to different potential underlying etiologies. So Chris, you touched on this a little bit ago, but what are the main causes of fetal growth restriction? That's a great question. And to really go through all of the causes would be a super, super long podcast. There are a multitude of etiologies. A lot of texts or articles that you read, and I think a really good way to think about it is maternal causes, fetal causes, and placental causes. And it's important to realize that there's some overlap in these things, and a lot of these causes ultimately result in a similar pathway of compromised uteroplacental perfusion that results in fetal growth restriction or decreased fetal growth. Generally speaking, some maternal causes are certain medications, extremes of age, smoking, interestingly women that live at high altitude, there's an association with fetal growth restriction, as well as things like hemoglobinopathies, vascular diseases like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, lupus, diabetes, chronic hypertension, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, the list goes on and on, but you know, that gives you an idea of some of the more common ones that we see. Or there are fetal causes, so things like congenital abnormalities, multiple gestations, aneuploidy, genetic diseases, infections like our torch infections, and then some of our placental causes. So placental abruption, previa, abnormal cord insertions, chorioangioma. It's not a comprehensive list for any of those general three categories, but it sort of helps give you an idea. The list is long, broad, and wide. All right. So Chris, why exactly do we care about growth restriction? I mean, some babies got to be small, right? That's a really good point. Some babies are going to be small. And we talk, when we talk about how we define it, that's actually one of the biggest limitations of our definitions that we use for fetal growth restriction. As you can imagine, 
if a baby is not reaching its growth potential that it would otherwise reach due to some sort of environmental or other factor, that's going to have repercussions beyond just that baby being small. So we know that babies that are growth restricted, there is an increased risk of stillbirth and neonatal death. And that's probably one of the big ones that we want to avoid and we want to prevent from happening. We also know that there's an increased risk of abnormal fetal heart tracings in labor, increased rates of neonatal acidosis, cesarean section. Once babies are delivered, there is an association with an increased risk of uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, respiratory distress. We also know that as babies grow after they're born, there's an increased risk of cerebral palsy, short stature, impaired intellectual function. And we know that even well beyond their childhood, there's an increased risk of adult onset coronary artery disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. So the impact of the in intrauterine environment uh, in these babies has long-lasting impacts throughout the rest of their lives. So Chris, now that we've talked about why we care about fetal growth restriction, how do we actually define fetal growth restriction? What resources do we use and how can, how can we tell that a baby is small? The answer is pretty straightforward to how we define it in this country. There's more sort of behind the curtains when you think about how we actually answer that question. So ACOG and SMFM agree that sonographic estimated fetal weight less than the 10th percentile is how we define fetal growth restriction. But as you could imagine, there's a lot of limitations to that. As Nick mentioned before, what if a baby just happens to be a small person? So what we would call constitutionally small. The majority of babies that we identify as growth-restricted using this cutoff are likely constitutionally small, which means there's no pathology. There's nothing wrong with those babies. They're just small. And part of the reason is that the growth curves we use are not necessarily representative of all demographic groups across all geographic boundaries. They're not necessarily individualized to individual fetuses. That is one of the criticisms of some of the growth curves that we use is that are the what we consider quote-unquote normal for cutoffs appropriate for each individual fetus? And there are different growth curves that are proposed. There's different ways that we can measure this. And I think getting really into that, it's probably beyond what we have time to talk about. We know that as a baby gets further and further down the weight percentiles, that the ink the chance that that's due to a pathologic process is higher. So less than the fifth percentile, less than the third percentile, less than the first percentile. We know that the chance that that's just a constitutionally small baby is lower. And we know that there's potentially worse outcomes in those circumstances. The other thing that's a huge limitation is what about that baby that is appropriately grown but isn't growing as well as it should be? So the baby that's what we call appropriate for gestational age, that is above the 10th percentile, but isn't reaching its growth trajectory. And so some places around the country use different ways to try to capture those babies. And so if you go to the, the UK, for example, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists actually use a definition of fetal growth restriction as less than the 10th percentile or an abdominal circumference less than the 10th percentile. So that, that way they can try to identify those babies that might be technically appropriate for gestational age based on overall weight, but that abdominal circumference is lagging and we are maybe seeing some of that asymmetric growth, which we think is likely due to more of a pathologic process ongoing. Got it. So Chris, I guess then 
how do we start looking for growth restriction? How do we screen, I guess I should say? Is it really as simple as just get ultrasounds for everybody or are there other things that we should do? That's a really interesting question. There's sort of two ways that we generally think about screening for fetal growth restriction. And the most commonly used one is what we do at every single prenatal visit where you measure the fundal height. And if you see a significant discrepancy than what you expect based on that gestational age, then you go to that next step of getting an ultrasound to evaluate for a baby that is too large or small, et cetera, based on what that fundal height measurement is. Obviously, there's some limitations to that. People's body habitus make it less accurate. People have large uterine fibroids that can make that more difficult to accurately assess. And it's a pretty low-tech, pretty imprecise way to screen. What we do for people that we know have a higher risk of fetal growth restriction, so people with chronic medical conditions or some other risk factor that we've identified that might place them at a higher risk than your average low-risk woman, a lot of times we will get an ultrasound to sort of screen for fetal growth restriction. Places will vary at what gestational age you should do that based on what condition. Lots of times we do that sort of starting around the beginning of the third trimester. One of the other things that's just worth mentioning is there are some serum analytes that we look at for aneuploidy screening that have been associated with fetal growth restriction. So things like an elevated AFP, a low PAP A. They're not great tests alone for screening for fetal growth restriction because of just the test performances for that specific condition in terms of what is their sensitivity and what is their positive predictive value. Obviously, if you identify those over the course of prenatal care, then that might change your management. But as of right now, there isn't a great screening test outside of those two strategies. Let's say you've gotten an ultrasound and the baby indeed has an EFW that is less than the 10th percentile. What should your next step be, Chris? So there's a couple things that I think are good universal rules of thumb to get more information about that situation. The number one reason, and I think one that we sometimes neglect, is just double check to make sure that you have their due date right. Is this baby actually as far along as you think that it is? You obviously don't want to start down the road of doing an extensive evaluation or workup when really that's your underlying problem. Some of the things that we think about in that situation is what if someone hasn't had uh, great prenatal care? Maybe they didn't have a good early dating ultrasound. Maybe they don't know their last menstrual period. They're presenting for prenatal care kind of late. How do we know if that baby is growth restricted? How do we know if it's, we just have their due date wrong? And that can be harder to tease out. Some of the things that can help us is we can do, do a sonographic estimation of fetal weight, you know, doing biometry like we all know that we do generally. But looking at other things like the measuring the cerebellum. So even in a growth-restricted baby, the cerebellum is generally a good measurement that's going to be preserved, and that can help clue you in if the cerebellum doesn't really line up with what you think the baby's gestational age by fetal weight. You know, once you feel confident that you have the right due date, this is truly a uh, growth-restricted fetus, the next thing is just to review the mother's medical history. So look for risk factors for this. Does this patient have chronic medical conditions or other things that would place this pregnancy at an increased risk of being affected by fetal growth restriction. After you do that, you're probably also going to want to do a detailed evaluation of the fetal anatomy, an assessment of the placenta, an assessment of amniotic fluid to identify you know, any potential causes. I think another important thing would be to review any aneuploidy screening that they've had. So you'll use that in conjunction with maybe any ultrasound findings that you have, particularly if there's any abnormal findings. 
But when we start checking these things off the list, these are common things that a lot of people have had some level of aneuploidy screening that can either increase or decrease your suspicion that aneuploidy may be playing a role. When we come to thinking about like an infectious workup for you know your torch infections, you use more of your um, overall clinical picture to help guide you whether that's necessarily worth doing or not. When we think of those infections, we often think of like symmetric growth restriction that happens earlier in gestation. Sometimes we'll find ultrasound findings that might be suggestive of it. When you talk with a patient, she may have specific exposures or histories that would clue you in. But generally speaking, you know, if the history is negative and you're not finding any of those findings, we don't routinely necessarily do a large infectious workup. Obviously, if you think that there's a good chance that there's a genetic abnormality or aneuploidy or infection that could be contributed, the diagnostic test for those types of things would be an amniocentesis. And that's something to potentially consider, particularly uh, if it's severe growth restriction that's very early onset and that's associated with other anomalies. So Chris, I guess from here, let's start thinking about management considerations. What are the things that we really need to make sure that we're looking at or working on once we do get a diagnosis of growth restriction? This is the classic obstetric quandary. Our management is basically guided by weighing the risks of prematurity versus the risks of ongoing expectant management. So, you know, one of our attendings at Women and Infants always likes to sometimes make the joke that there's no obstetric problem that we can't make a neonatology problem. You know, I think that kind of highlights that point. So one of the themes about this, though, is that we can't always identify the constitutionally small fetus from the fetus that's pathologically small. That's a big part of our thought process when we are considering our ongoing management. That being said, because we can't figure out a constitutionally small fetus from a pathologically small fetus, generally. And so we manage them all the same. How you specifically manage them is going to vary based on your institution and your protocols. There's obviously antenatal surveillance that we do that I'll sort of go through. And there's variation in how frequently this should be done, how this should be done. And that comes from the fact that we don't know what the perfect answer is for that. And so the big thing is just know what your institution does. I'll tell you what we do at Women and Infants Hospital. You may have a difference in how that's done at your institution and just make sure that you're following whatever institutional protocol that you guys have. So there'll be some assessment of monitoring serial growth. We don't do this ever any more than more frequently than every two weeks. Most places, when I've asked colleagues at other institutions, we'll do it some range of every three to four weeks. At women and infants, we just monitor and measure fetal growth serially and we do it every three weeks. There'll be some form of antenatal surveillance. So some combination of non-stress tests, biophysical profiles that should be done generally weekly or twice weekly. At women and infants, we do that. We do non-stress tests twice weekly, as well as uh, a weekly assessment of amniotic fluid. And then the other big component that we use for a growth-restricted fetus is measuring the umbilical artery waveform by Doppler ultrasound. And so what that tool helps us see is uh, gives us a window into overall placental function. What it is is you basically take the waveform through the umbilical artery and you look at the ratio between the systolic flow and the diastolic flow. If a placental has some level of decreased function, you'll see changes in that waveform and that can clue us into decreasing placental function. They come in four general 
categories or grades. And so one is normal. Then there have what we call elevated Doppler systems. This is the ratio of the systolic flow to diastolic flow. If that ratio is increased, that demonstrates decreased perfusion during diastole. So that's the first step of abnormal. And then you can get to the next step where you see absent and diastolic flow. So that's where forward flow through the umbilical artery actually stops during diastole. And then the final stage is what we call reversed end diastolic flow, where blood flow actually reverses direction in the umbilical artery during diastole. When we know from some studies that when you have an elevated SD ratio, it can be representative of about 30% of the fetal vessels being abnormal in the placenta. When we see absent and reversed end diastolic flow, it's more representative of 60 to 70% of fetal vessels being abnormal in the placenta. And so obviously those, that last two categories of absent and reversed end diastolic flow are the most concerning of significant disruption of placental perfusion. How often you do these? Again, no one knows the right time frame. If you read the statements by SMFM, they'll say, you know, initially should be done, you know, in intervals of one to two weeks, and then can be spaced out without any specifics given. At women and infants, we do them every week. There are some other Dopplers that I'll just mention. There's things like the middle cerebral artery, the ductus venosus. The big caveat with them, I would just say, is that, you know, ACOG says there's insufficient evidence to support their routine use at this time. Doing a combination of some level of antenatal surveillance and Dopplers has been associated with a decrease in stillbirth and poor perinatal outcomes. So there is some evidence that this type of antenatal surveillance it does improve our outcomes. Chris, is there anything that mom can do potentially during her pregnancy to hopefully make things a little bit better for the fetus? Could she start doing something or stop doing something that would make the baby grow more? So that is the million-dollar question, and that's the question that every single patient who gets diagnosed with growth restriction asks the day they, get, they find out that their baby has growth restriction. And it's a little bit of a frustrating thing because we don't really have great interventions for it. You know, it makes sense intuitively if a patient smokes, then maybe quitting smoking may help. If they have chronic medical conditions, make sure that we are optimizing the care of those medical conditions may be beneficial. There's no clear evidence that doing those things make, will make a clear difference and improve, but it just sort of makes intuitive sense as things that you can do. There aren't really big things that you can do. A number of things have been looked at increased maternal intake of, you know, should moms eat more food or more calories or things like that. And if in a developed country where we don't have moms that are severely malnourished, it doesn't really make a difference. Things like bed rest, calcium channel blockers, starting people on aspirin, uh, heparin, oxygen, plasma volume expansion. There's no clear evidence that any of these things work. Uh, so it's a, it's a frustrating situation, both as a provider and as a mother, that there's not necessarily a clear intervention that you can do to improve fetal growth once it's been diagnosed. And I guess kind of the million-dollar question in terms of management, too, that I'm sure you get asked all the time in consultation, Chris, is when exactly do we deliver these babies? We have trials that look at this, but this is not one of those things where there's dozens and dozens of trials to look at and compare. Some of the trials used as their inclusion criteria, clinical equipoise. So in order to be enrolled in determining the timing of delivery for a trial, it has to mean that the provider 
wasn't sure if it was the right time to deliver or not, which obviously, you know, there's some issues with that, even though that's the pragmatic way to do a trial for that and the clinically pragmatic question. So there have been some changes to this. If you had asked me this question even a month or two ago, I would have said that our timing of delivery is a sort of set and it's specific based on what our antenatal testing is. So, and again, it takes into balance the what's the risk of expectant management and poor outcomes versus what are the risks of prematurity. Again, remembering that a lot, the majority of fetuses that are fetal, have fetal growth restriction are constitutionally small. So in the setting of, you know, a fetus that has normal antenatal testing, normal umbilical artery dopplers, normal amniotic fluid, then the time to deliver is about 38 to 39 weeks. And so that's the recommendation of the window by ACOG and SMFM is 38 to 39 weeks. Without that reassuring antenatal testing, depended on what the specifics of that were, specifically based off what were your umbilical artery dopplers. So we were at 37 weeks if you had elevated SD ratios in your umbilical artery, we would deliver it at that point. So at 37 weeks if you have elevated SD ratios. If you had absent end diastolic flow, then we would deliver at 34 weeks. If you had reverse end diastolic flow, you would deliver at 32 weeks. Prior to that, you would individualize care, and that would take into account other clinical factors and your antenatal surveillance, like your biophysical profiles and your non-stress test. ACOG just updated its fetal growth restriction practice bulletin, and they separated this into two general categories. One is that the fetus that has growth restriction, but normal Dopplers, normal antenatal testing and surveillance, still recommend for delivery at 38 to 39 weeks. For all other situations, they say 32 weeks to 37 weeks, taking into account individual factors. So they, instead of giving out a very prescribed, you know, algorithm of, at this point you do this, they sort of gave a broader range and said more individualized delivery planning. So that first sort of algorithm that I mentioned is something that you may hear, and I think people may use that sort of as a reference point. Um, but the new update acknowledges the fact that there's a lot of gray when it comes to managing this, such, these situations. Obviously, in conjunction with that for the timing of delivery, you know, if it's a gestational age where you would give corticosteroids, you would want to give that for benefit. If it's a gestational age where you would give neuroprotective magnesium, you would also do that in anticipation of delivery. Sometimes people ask the question of fetal growth restriction, is that an indication for cesarean delivery? Not by itself, no. Generally speaking, in the setting of growth restriction, you would reserve cesarean section for normal obstetric indications. Okay, so let's say you've gotten this mother through this pregnancy, you've safely delivered the fetus at the appropriate gestational age, everything turns out well. What do you tell her about her next pregnancy? We know that if someone's had a pregnancy affected by fetal growth restriction, there is an increased recurrence risk. Some places will quote that as high as 20-25% of the time. But that's really dependent also on what you think the underlying etiology is. Obviously, if that pregnancy was affected by aneuploidy, that's different. That's not necessarily going to recur in the next pregnancy. And so that would be more related to what is that patient's risk of having aneuploidy in the next pregnancy rather than just overall fetal growth restriction. It's not unreasonable knowing that there is that increased risk of considering growth ultrasound in the third trimester. Again, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily done universally, but I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to consider, and a lot of places would do that routinely. There is an association with fetal growth restriction in a short pregnancy interval. So we always 
think that planning for pregnancy is a good idea. People have looked at whether these patients should be on low-dose aspirin. ACOG still says there's insufficient evidence to routinely recommend low-dose aspirin in patients. Oftentimes people will ask, is there a medical workup that we should do? Are there maternal conditions we should screen for? So there's no evidence that you should routinely screen for things like thrombophilia if you don't have other reasons to be screening a patient for that. For antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, there is one of the diagnostic criteria can be delivery of a morphologically normal, but growth restricted fetus less than 34 weeks. The issue with doing that is that there is no clear evidence that if you treat someone in a subsequent pregnancy, that that lowers the risk. So you can screen someone for that. It's part of the diagnostic criteria, but the role of intervention in a subsequent pregnancy is less clear. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our fetal growth restriction episode. So should we summarize? I think that sounds great. So we started off this episode with Chris by talking about what exactly was fetal growth restriction, saying that fetal growth restriction is determined by mostly genetic and demographic factors. The broad definition of growth restriction is a fetus that has not reached its genetic growth potential due to other factors. We talked about both asymmetric and symmetric growth restriction. Asymmetric is the more common type, representing about 70 to 80% of growth restriction. And that's what we classically think about in terms of a mismatch between supply to the baby and its demand. Whereas symmetric growth restriction, again, the least common is more likely related to aneuploidy or genetic disease or some other type of exposure. We also talked about things that cause fetal growth restriction. And we said that there are a lot of etiologies. Um, And we like to think about this um, broken up into several categories. So you can think about this in terms of maternal, fetal, and placental. There's a lot of reasons to care about growth restriction. Growth restriction increases fetal and neonatal morbidity and mortality, including risks of stillbirth or neonatal death, increases the risk of newborn complications, including neck, respiratory distress syndrome, cerebral palsy, impaired intellectual function, And it also has implications for adulthood, including increased risk of coronary artery disease, diabetes, and obesity. And while there is no perfect way to diagnose fetal growth restriction, right now ACOG and SMFM defines fetal growth restriction as an estimated fetal weight as seen on ultrasound that is less than the 10th percentile. We then move forward to talk about screening and evaluation of growth restriction. Screening, again, is based simply on the fundal height and then obtaining an ultrasound if indicated. You can also use serum analytes like a PAP-A or AFP, though these are less sensitive. So once we've diagnosed somebody with fetal growth restriction, there's a few things that you should go over. So the first thing really is just to make sure that you have the correct due date and that this baby is indeed growth restricted. The next couple things that you can do is to screen for maternal conditions and also make sure that there's a detailed assessment of the anatomy, the fluid, and also the placenta. Um, Things that you can do based on your ultrasound findings and previous history would be things like reviewing aneuploidy screening, considering an infectious workup if necessary, and possibly an amniocentesis. We then talked about a number of management considerations. For antenatal considerations, remember that you should manage all fetuses the same based on your institutional protocol. Serial growth ultrasounds generally in the range of every three to four weeks. Antenatal surveillance consisting of NSTs and ultrasound exams, whether that be a biophysical profile or a fluid assessment. And then the Dopplers. We talked about the four gradations of Dopplers going from normal 
the elevated, the absent, and then finally reversed. And these can be done every one to two weeks, again, depending on your institutional protocol. We then talked about delivery timing for these infants, and again, noting that the data is limited. We talked about the old recommendations, however, that are still floating around, um, where 38 to 39 weeks would be the recommendation with normal testing, 37 weeks with elevated SD ratios, 34 weeks with absent end diastolic flow, and 32 weeks with reverse end diastolic flow. The newest guidance from ACOG actually changes those guidelines, keeping the recommendation the same in isolated growth restriction, but then using a softer approach to say that delivery can be recommended between 32 and 0 to 37 and 6 in cases of growth restriction that have additional risk factors for an adverse outcome. For mom's next pregnancy, we know that there is as high as a 20 to 25% chance of recurrence of fetal growth restriction. And things to tell mom in the next pregnancy is that you could consider a growth ultrasound sometime in the third trimester of pregnancy and also consider avoiding a short pregnancy interval. However, there's still insufficient data for things like a baby aspirin. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show and sharing that knowledge with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. And remember, there's no obstetric problem that we can't make a neonatology one. All right. Thanks, everybody. Once again, this is Faye. And this is Nick. And this is Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like what we had to say on the podcast today, you loved hearing from Chris, please reach out to us. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher is. You can find us on social media on Twitter at Kriogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook at Kriogs Over Coffee, on our website at www.kriogsovercoffee.com, and our newest edition, our Patreon, where you can give us some love uh, in exchange for some swag every month. That will be at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. If you've got an idea for the show or you have a correction or a question to ask us, reach out to us via email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com or drop a line on the website. 